And we're in Second Corinthians. Yeah. So, but before we begin, let's start our Sunday morning with prayer. Okay, Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday to gather in your name to put ourselves under the means of grace that you promised you would work in our lives as we sit under the teaching of the Word and as we pray together in fellowship. And Lord, uh, think about the great work that you've done for us through the Gospel. We're so grateful, Lord, and we give you all the glory. We thank you, Lord, for the scattered flock around the world that listens to us because they're hungry for the Word of God and perhaps where they live has been taken away from them by some of the trends in the church. We pray for them, that you would bless them and cause them to grow, to, to, to guard them, to keep them safe. And we pray for them as well. And we thank you for this Sunday in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here we are um, to open up Second Corinthians once again. Good morning. We've had an interesting series of lessons from Second Corinthians that have to do with giving, money and giving. And if you're new to us, you can hear these things on the Internet. We put them all up on the Internet if you want to go back. But just to summarize what we've learned from Second Corinthians chapter 8, we're on verse 11 today, but the first ten verses, the thing that's been really, I don't know if you'd call it surprising, but the thing that's been very interesting is that what the New Testament teaches about money and giving is pretty well the opposite of the practice of the church throughout much of the history. And for some reason, churches in church in general have not really paid a whole lot of attention to what Paul had to say about this matter. And why, I don't know. I suppose there's a tendency to not listen to God. But I think that we get the idea that there's some better plan, but there really is nothing better than to follow what the Lord teaches us. So we've learned that the key thing that you need to know about giving and money in the New Testament is grace. In in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where the most concentrated material about giving is found, 8, 1 through 9, 15, we we see the term grace or gracious work many, many times, and it's the key theme of this section. So, The basic idea is that God gives grace and that the recipients of grace who are taught in the Word become gracious. And God's work of grace makes us gracious. And when people become gracious, they participate in a gracious work and they're willing to give and to help people in the church with needs and help further the work of the gospel. So that's what we've learned. Now let's go to verse 11. It says here, but now finish doing it also. Remember, again, I have to keep setting the stage because there's a lot of uh, biographical material going on in, in Corinthians because Paul's having a personal issue with them. And so what had happened was a year earlier, a year earlier, 
he had begun this, and they had begun to take an offering, and now he wants them to finish it. Having received a good report from Titus that they had responded well to the letter he sent to correct them about some issues. So verse 11 says, but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. So they earlier showed a desire to give. Remember, the collection had to do with relief for the poor, persecuted saints in Judea. And I believe one of the reasons that Paul uh, was so uh, adamant about completing this, as we said before, was that Paul did not want to see a situation where you have a Jewish church and a Gentile church going two different directions. He wanted, and you can see his heart about this in Ephesians chapter 2, that there be one new man. And so by the Gentiles sharing financially to the relief of the Jewish Christians in Judea, Paul not only said that there would be the benefit of that, but there would be this sort of the saying something by actions. By their actions, they're saying, we love you and we support you and we believe that we're one with you through the gospel. Now, he says, may also be the completion of it by your ability. As we saw earlier, I believe in verse 3, the Macedonians says that they, it says, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Own accord could be translated freely, willingly, or of their free will. Some of them did give beyond their ability, but Paul's not asking for that. That's something they voluntarily did, and he didn't stop them from doing that, but it's not what he's asking for. Paul's not asking people to give what they don't have. He's not taking any faith pledges. And we talked about that a few days ago. But he does ask that by God's grace, of their own accord, they're not under compulsion, as they have the ability, they would help the saints in Judea. Now the ready, the word readiness there um, means uh, eagerness of intention. Uh, or eagerness of will. Readiness to desire would be literally eagerness, prothumia, of the will, thaling. And so you, you were eager to do this, and let's complete it, but by your ability. Now, I had some, I don't have any cross references on this verse, but I do have some citations of scholars. Excuse me, okay, here we go. This is from Bar Barnett. Critical to this verse and to those that succeed it is the noun willingness. And um, the RSV says readiness, which is consistent with Paul's emphasis on the need for a voluntary response. Only on this basis can their action prove or demonstrate the genuineness of their love, verse 8. So giving is, is the, really, the, besides the emphasis on grace in these passages, in these chapters, the other emphasis that goes along with it is this idea of free will or willingness, readiness, voluntary, and so on. 
Paul is not putting anybody on an, under an obligation. They are to do so freely. And as they do, this says something to the church in Judea, this recipient of their gracious gift. It says something about their love for the gospel and their love for fellow Christians. So that's the teaching there. I think I had one more citation from um, Garland, page 53. Here's what he says. The phrase translated, according to your means, parallels the phrase in H. 8.3, according to their ability. Paul does not ask them to do as the Macedonians did and go beyond their means, but only to give according to their means. They are not to go into debt, to become disadvantaged or overburdened. Paul's goal is not unreasonable. He's not trying to raise record amounts. His instructions in 1 Corinthians 16.2, to set aside a sum of money each week, reveals that he knows he's dealing with many who have limited resources, and a significant amount will only be accumulated over time. Whatever they give generously, he assures them, is acceptable to God. God does not expect widow's mites, Mark 12.44, but God does expect generosity and giving gifts without a begrudging spirit. What matters to God is only what is in the giver's heart. In the Corinthians' case, the smallest gift is greater than the grandest intention that goes Unfulfilled In the New Testament, the principle in proportion to what you have, 1 Corinthians 16.2, replaces the principle, notice, replaces the principle of the tithe found in the Old Testament. Okay? So, Old Testament-style tithing is not binding under the New Covenant. But generous giving, proportional giving, <laughs> joyful giving, <laughs> all of these things can be found but not under canon law. You are obligated tithes, and if you don't, you are in rebellion against God. That's not taught in the New Testament. It really is not. Okay. I was just wondering whose commentary was that? Garland. Oh, Garland. Yeah, that was from the New American Commentary series, which I was buying one volume at a time of that whenever I was in a book. Like, for instance, when I was in Matthew, I got the New American Commentary on Matthew because commentaries are kind of expensive. But when I got the Logos system, I got uh, the entire series that's been done. And so that's where I got the Second Corinthians one. It's really handy in there. I like it better, actually, the online one, than actually having a book on my shelf. Yes? At uh, term in, in verse 3, we're talking about being freely willing to yes. give. I think we can apply that definition when we studied this uh, a while back, when we talk about free will, we're talking about choosing according to what the mind thinks is best. So if we oh, sure. understand the grace of God and what he's done, we freely give mm-hmm. of our own accord and desire to, to be generous. It, it, yeah, in some ways it's uh, related to the uh, Edwards definition, which is what you're alluding to. Jonathan Edwards' definition of free will was the, that the person is at liberty to do as they please. Okay? You, you, are, you can do as you please. And he said, in fact, the human will always cho- chooses according to what appears most desirable at the moment. Which is re- the reason why I believe you see the emphasis of grace and the emphasis of free will in 2 Corinthians 8. 
Free will is rarely ever mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Okay, and the most prominent times that it is mentioned have to do with where there's liberty and a person can choose. I looked at, if you just look up free will at the New American Standard, you only find the word once, and that's in Philemon, and it had to do with the uh, decision what to do with the slave. And he said that was up to free will in, in Philemon. And it's the same kind of an idea. Now, there's related terms found here in 2 Corinthians 8, but a similar a decision that a Christian will make concerning how much to give, a decision a Christian would make about what to do with his slave, because in that day, that, was, that would also be giving to release a slave, but that's what he decided to do in Philemon, free will. Now, I agree with Edward's definition, and the fact is that's why grace is so prominently found in this passage where it does talk about free will, because a person chooses according to what seems most desirable at the moment, all right? Now, if we're going to make a godly choice, that's not going to happen unless there's been a prior work of grace. See, the work of grace changes our hearts, and when our hearts are changes, our intents and our desires change, and then we truly have free will. In other words, we choose differently than we did before we were recipients of grace. Okay? And that has implications, of course, that Edwards is talking about with the doctrines of salvation. That's why... I agree with Edwards. That's why we teach grace alone. God does a work of grace through the gospel, and then the person who's the recipient of grace suddenly has free will. And we don't teach that the will is nothing. We don't, but uh, what does Trent say? Trent has a whole section anathematizing people who... uh, did you ever read that section? There's a whole section on the canons on justification where, where they have anathemas, and they anathematize anybody who doesn't believe in free will the way Rome does. In other words, it, it was directed against Luther in his book, The Bondage of the Will. So if you, if you agree with Luther, Rome says you may go to hell. There. <laughs> Take that. Yeah, talking about that, let me do a little advertising for something that I, this was loaned to me by someone from the church, and it's an eight, eight CD set on Roman Catholicism by John MacArthur explaining the heresy of Catholicism. All right? You can get this on his website. It is fabulous. I've been listening through the second time now. It is absolutely fabulous. And this anathema on anybody that says anything that we disagree with is prevalent. If you say anything different than what Rome says about Mary, anathema. If you say anything different than what Rome says about the Mass, anathema. In fact, if you don't submit to the Pope and the teaching magisterium, and the traditions, and the dogmas, and everything ever taught by Rome, you're anathema. So the only possible recourse you have is to become a slave to that system and obey them in absolutely everything, or anathema. You go to hell. 
So I would, if you have Catholic relatives, or maybe you were saved out of Catholicism, I think you'd find this series tremendous. It was an eye-opener for me. I thought I understood Catholicism, and after I listened to this, I realized I had a very deficient understanding of such things as the doctrine of Mary and the doctrine of the Mass and so on. I understood the Pope and the papacy and that, but I hadn't really looked into these things. Okay, Dick. This is really confession time when we have Pastor DeWay confessing he doesn't know something. This is really good. Okay. I do now, though. <laughs> Simple thing. Uh, it's gty.org. gty.org. Okay, and the second thing is it's under explaining. Okay, I think I found it by audio series or yeah, something. Yeah, but when you go in there, it's all according to uh, alphabet. Oh. And he doesn't go according to topic. I see. So you have to look under E's for explaining. Okay, look under E for explaining. <laughs> HCD set, well worth getting if you're interested in the topic. Uh, it's very rare I'll sit and listen to something through twice like I'm doing with this. Yes. In, in high school, I loved my Latin studies, and that's where I learned to look up words in the dictionary. What does anathema mean? It's a Latin root? Well, it means anathema means cut off, accursed, or damned. Thank you. Okay. If you're cursed by God, then you don't have any options. Now, Paul pronounced anathema, didn't he? And anybody who has a different gospel? Banished. Okay. Is that what it means? All right. Banished. Okay. So, oh, yeah, we were talking about free will. That was one of the things anathematized. If you don't believe in free will the same way Rome does, and their version of it means that people have the ability to do things pleasing to God without a prior work of grace. So um, the alones are important, beloved. The People want to know why we emphasize the solas of the Reformation. Well, if listening to that series just really brings that home. The solas, let's just start with Scripture alone. I'm going to speak five hours on, that, on Scripture alone in Illinois at Gary Gillies Church. And how do you find five hours on sola scriptura? Well, I, I did. <laughs> and uh, lots of implications and applications. Now, why do, you, why do we say Scripture alone? Well, because the Roman Catholic Church says they believe in the Scripture. But as MacArthur points out, and as it's just driven home to me as I was listening to that series, when I was listening to this doctrine of Mary, who's turned into a virtual goddess, who, who alone is mediating grace, then after MacArthur spends like three hours going through what Rome says about Mary, then he goes and goes to what the Bible says about Mary. And you get a totally different picture. They say Mary never had any other children. The Bible says she did. She said they say Mary was born sinless. The Bible says Mary needed a savior. She said she needed a savior. God my savior. And and so if you don't have scripture alone, in my opinion, you'll end up with no scripture ultimately because once the church authorities or the Latter-day apostles and prophets or anybody has the authority to speak beyond scripture, they universally in church history universally don't just add to scripture, they reject it or refute it or deny it or contradict it. And so once these humans start speaking for God, they'll always just ignore what the Scripture says. If you believe what the Scripture says about Mary, you cannot believe what the Roman Catholic Church says about Mary. They're totally contradictory.
But they say we have scripture and tradition. But if the tradition, but the tradition always destroys the scripture. And that's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. By your scripture, you invalidate the word of God. Okay. Now, the reason the Reformation said scripture alone was why? Because that the, the, the Catholic Church doesn't, isn't against the scripture. So they say. But if you say scripture alone, then you're anathematized. What about faith alone? Does the Roman Catholic Church believe in faith? Yes, they believe that you need to have faith. Okay? And they believe that God works through faith and that Christians should have faith. But if you say faith alone, anathema to you. You're accursed from God and you're going to hell because you taught faith alone. What about grace? Does the Roman Catholic Church have any understanding about grace? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Grace is mediated through Mary. She's the mediatrix of all graces. Um, and, but, of course, that's false. But what about grace alone? No, then you're anathema if you say grace alone. All right. What about, well, it's, and it gets to go down the list. All of these, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, all of, all of these doctrines, these solas, build a firewall against human works-oriented religion. And, and, and it's basically teaching, the solas teach, salvation is from God. It's not doled out by church authorities. It's not earned by somebody's merits. It's of God. Okay? Yes, Glenn. Oh, hold on. There's a guy in the back row there who wants to talk. <laughs> Ultimately, at the very end, the Roman Catholic Church becomes a surrogate Christ. A surrogate Christ? Yes. That's yeah. what it all leads to. MacArthur talks about that. Um, so, free will. What really is it? Well, what it is, is that after God's done a work of grace, humans are motivated to choose differently. Okay. God doesn't obliterate our will, nor does, is he forcing us to do things against our will, but he's liberating our will from its bondage to sin so that we desire what we used to hate. I've illustrated this through my own conversions, many, my own conversion story many times. I was converted when I was 20, which was in 1971. In the summer of 1971, I was converted. I was 20 years old. Now, in 1971, a 20-year-old was into rock and roll, you know, the whole Beatles, you know, the new culture that came on the scene in the 60s and so on. That, that, was, that was me. I was going to, uh, Diane and I would drive around Iowa to find the rock group, right? So we could go to these concerts. Fortunately for me, I didn't like it so loud, so I always stuffed Kleenex in my ears at these concerts. I could hear. <laughs> I wouldn't, maybe couldn't if otherwise. A lot of, a lot of, so let me tell you what happened then. If, let's just go to July 1, 1971, or any time in that era. If somebody would have told me, Bob, I'm going to predict that one month from the day, you're going to be in a little Pentecostal church, and you're going to go Sunday morning and Sunday night, 
And Sunday night, you're going to stay after the service to gather around a piano and sing old-time gospel hymns with a bunch of old people. Oh, you go, what? That would be the most absurd, preposterous, horrifying, repulsive idea that anybody ever could say. But I tell you the truth, it happened. I was there singing those gospel songs, and I had more, I enjoyed it more than I ever did any, any rock concert I'd ever been. Why? Because I was a new creature in Christ. And I'm not saying you have to do exactly that, but I wanted to. That's my point about free will. The only way the will becomes free is if God does a work of grace. Otherwise, it's in bondage and enslavement to sin. And that's what the Reformation taught. So, giving. Why is he saying free will? Because Paul has not instituted an Old Testament tithing system. That, that by law demanded this is exactly what you give, when you give, and how you give it. It was all specified. You didn't have any choice about it. You could either obey or disobey, but you couldn't make up your own mind. But when it comes to giving, here Paul talks about free will. He uses the term here, the eagerness of the will, thaline, to choose. And it says in verse 12, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So he doesn't intend to impoverish anyone. Um, demanding that people uh, divest themselves. Some have thought that the thing that they did early in Acts, even that was free will. Remember when they, Ananias and Sapphira sold his property and then went and lied about the price of it? I'm going from memory here, but I believe Peter said that when you had that, it was in your power. Is that what it said? Yeah, you had it, you had it within your power. And you chose to lie to the Holy Spirit. You didn't have to give it. So even then, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to give away their capital assets. There was no law ever given by Christ or his apostles that says you must give away your capital assets. Now, some people think that part of the reason for the poverty in Judea that Paul was trying to alleviate was the fact that they had done that. That divested of all their capital assets, they had no way to make a living. If you don't have a farm, you can't raise produce. And if you have no capital assets, then you have no way of making future income. And with no way to make future income, then the entire church becomes dependent on somebody else. So uh, this early attempt at socialism never became the norm in the church. And I wouldn't really call it socialism because it wasn't forced by some government, but these sort of things don't work. So Paul's not asking the church to give up its, all of its resources, or the individual Christians to give up all their resources, but to give according to their ability. So, so this would say, not according to what he does not have. As we said a couple of weeks ago, to me, that rolls out these faith pledges where you're told, okay, you don't have enough money to give to the church, so make a pledge that you will have the money later to give it, and then hope that the money comes and, and so on. Paul said, no, don't give according to what you don't have. If God gives you money, you can give money away. But if you don't have any, you can't give it away. Yes. So when the Macedonians were commended for giving sacrificially, 
or like in Mark chapter 12 when Jesus commends the widow for giving very sacrificially, um, how do you reconcile that with what you just said? With okay. You don't have to give sacrificially. Well, what Paul, if you just take Paul's uh, teaching here, they didn't, the Macedonians didn't have to either. They, they begged for the privilege. They had to beg Paul to do so. And that creates an interesting scenario, and I've seen it play out before, where somebody wants to give more than, than you know they can afford, and they ask for the privilege to do that. Earlier, my, Christian, or my ministry as, as an elder or pastor, I probably would have told them not to. But I think that dishonors the person. Okay, If a person, knowing what they're doing, as they say in your last will and testament, of clear mind <laughs> or whatever, all right, if a person, knowing what they're doing, wants to give sacrificially, and there's some reason that's, that that's what they choose to do and they want to do, and they beg for the privilege to do, at this point I would allow them to do it. Because otherwise you're demeaning their, them and their own intentions. In other words, you're wrong to even want to do this. So Paul wasn't saying they were wrong to want to do it or wrong to do it, but he will not command it. And he doesn't ask anybody to do that. Can we, can't we, though, rightfully encourage people to do that because we have this overwhelmingly positive uh, recommendation in the Scripture to do so? Well, I think we should follow Paul's example, Patrick. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's a very uh, astute issue. But Paul's example was, though he uh, pointed out the Macedonians, he's not trying to use that as a club to get the same sort of action out of the Corinthians. You know, he's, he pointed out what they did, but he's just simply asking the Christians in, in Corinth to give according to what they have. And the Christians in Corinth are relatively wealthy compared to the ones in Macedonia. And the reason is they weren't under the same persecution. And part of the reason they weren't under the same persecution was because they were so compromised with the world, there wasn't much to persecute. Okay, uh, Coralie. I think the minute we become constrained or um, we have restraint or we become calculating and, and have constraint about our giving, we've missed the mark. Our giving is to reflect the, the very love. Love is really at the yeah. root of giving. Yeah. And we love because God first loved us. Freely you have given, yeah. receive, freely yeah. give. Right. And the whole um, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians talks at the very end of what love is. Yeah. And you can give your body to be burned, and it means nothing without love. And right. uh, we are, you spoke about the transformed uh, heart, and that's where it all begins. Right. And I think the people in the apostolic church gave so abundantly because Christ himself gave. We, we just really merely reflect what God has already done for us. He's forgiven our sins. He's, I mean, it's the unspeakable gift that he's given. Yep. And we just merely reflect that, and but, it's our nature to do so. But the question is, if we see a widow putting her might into the thing, should we go and try to stop her? Absolutely not. She's sacrificing as Christ okay. sacrificed right. for us. Larry. You know, here we go again. Uh, I'm going to cite that same passage I recited uh, a while back because it kind of comes down to that. And see if uh, you don't see the word stewardship behind the lines of this verse here in Luke uh, 16.11. says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Yeah. 
So true riches is the greater and worldly riches is the lesser. In a yes, sense. that's true. And there's a stewardship aspect because you have to be trustworthy. Yeah, a steward is a household manager. I'm actually going to preach about that this morning because there's a path in Luke 12. There's, it's talking about people having, I believe, referring to church leaders, having a stewardship for how they take care of the sheep. Okay? So steward is someone in a household where they... Um, Kenneth Bailey had a whole a list of the priorities in a household. I think it was the owner, the mistress, the household manager, or no, the steward. You know, you know, the, the lowest uh, they had like seven layers of in a big house, a wealthy household of, of authority, and the lowest one was a slave, doulas. And the interesting thing is that Jesus, I'm getting ahead of myself in my sermon, but Jesus takes the role of the slave, the lowest one in the household, when he comes back and serves the slave. Okay, yes. Going back to Patrick's thing on Macedonia, is there an element of grace there? Are there times when somebody may be in a situation that they're getting pressed to do something, but they really feel like it's the right thing to do? Yeah, in Paul's case, they were taking up an offering and they begged to do it. They really wanted to do it. Yeah, they begged to do it. It was, it, it was grace um, that caused them to want to give. Yes? Uh, how much more the desire that the Macedonians had had to give sacrificially? I don't think you, that dis- sacrificially is discussed any further than that. But Jesus Christ was risen just a few years before that. It's how much more sacrificially could we do and what would we do as Christians just recently having seen that or having heard of his, uh, his resurrection and so on? Yeah, and I've talked to people, I know people, who used to have a whole lot of money and I went to bad things. And then they become a Christian and they don't have all that money they used to have. And I've had people say, well, I wish I hadn't wasted all my money. I'd like to be a bigger giver. See, you know... <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> Give yourself to the Lord. And, <laughs> and I've had other people say uh, th- these abusive churches took all of our money before we came to a gospel church, and I wish that hadn't happened. Well, don't worry about it. Everybody, the Lord just says for people to give as they receive grace, and it's up to them to freely decide what to give. The Lord's in charge of these things. All right. Um, for verse 12, readiness is present, same word, prothumia. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Uh, so, or in proportion to. So we have this issue of proportionality. The word acceptable is a word associated with sacrifices. Um, and I have a cross reference, 1 Peter 2 5. Um, Carla, could you look up 1 Peter 2.5 and, and Joe, um, Exodus 35.5 and Dick, 2 Corinthians 9.7. So far, I've said 1 Peter 2.5, Exodus 35.5, 2 Corinthians 9.7, and Larry 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. So 1 Peter 2.5, what does that say? You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Yeah, there that same word acceptable is used, used in the Greek. So this is a word associated with sacrifice. So this giving out of a willing heart because God has done a work of grace is an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. That's what, it, that's what that means. And if you think about it, that's an important concept out of the Old Testament, the idea of, of acceptable. In the Old Testament, it was a big thing if it was acceptable, because if it wasn't, they might die. Okay? If the high priest is going to go into the holiest place on the day of atonement, his sacrifice better be acceptable. And to be acceptable, they had to do it according to the stipulations of the Old Testament about what was required. When Noah got out of the ark and offered sacrifice, he said it was a sweet savor to God. He accepted it. It was pleasing to him. So the idea that God accepts our giving as we do so by his grace out of a free heart is acceptable to him. And that's a good thing. It's pleasing to God. Uh, Exodus 35, 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. Let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. There is, in the case of, that's interesting, that was in Exodus 35.5. When they were taking the offering for the building of the tabernacle, that was not governed by law. All right, so it gives an illustration of the situation of the New Covenant. The building of the tabernacle, the specifications were given to God, by God directly to Moses, but there, their giving was according to whoever is willing. And the people came and willingly helped and willingly gave. So it was a precursor to what giving would be under the new covenant. Okay, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. Okay. <laughs> Good. God loves a cheerful giver. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Well, that's an, that's an interesting way of saying it. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Again, giving length of grace. It may not be money, right? It may be service. Um, and that same thing happened when they built the tabernacle. So, yeah, giving isn't always money. It's giving of ourselves to the Lord and our talents to his service and our time and efforts to the gospel. So it's the participation is, uh, how would you say it, it's an honor. And in, in reference to what Patrick was saying, uh, the Macedonians begged to participate even though they were poor because they felt that it would be an honor if they could be part of what God, what God was doing through Paul. They, they considered it an honor. And any, be any involvement whatsoever in the gospel and in the new covenant and in the fellowship and prayer and the various things that happen, anything that God gives us to do is an honor. And it's an honor, inexpressible honor, that we even get to participate because we're really not worthy. I saw a pastor yesterday. I was... Watch, went to see, or Diane and I went to see our grandson play football. And we were sitting in stands, and there was a pastor that I knew from Minneapolis in the stands. And he had a kid playing football. So he said, how are you doing? 
And I said, much better than I deserve. <laughs> okay, yes. Well, when Christ saved us and sacrificed himself to forgive our sins, it was done out of love, and love is relationship. And I've heard it said that you can give without love, but you cannot love without giving. Okay. And also the verse that was cited that you had someone read over here, I thought it was interesting. It was um, 2 Corinthians 9. Um, yeah, the joyful giver. 9-7. Uh, uh, each man should give what he has decided in his heart. It doesn't mm-hmm. say in his mind. In his heart. Because uh, it's love. It's love that's at the root of it. That's true, it, but the Bible doesn't giving. make a strong distinction between the heart and mind. True. The heart includes the whole inner person. True, but even uh, John 3.16 said that God, that God so loved yeah. that he gave. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to verse 13. For this is not the e- for the ease of others and for your affliction, but way, by way of equality. Okay, so Paul is now modifying this so that people understand it. He's not trying to afflict one kind of Christian in order to make a cushy life for another. Uh, I know some. I know some people that do that. <laughs> Next weekend, we're going to have Justin Peters talking about those who do that. They afflict the people under their care to make a cushy life for the preacher. Uh, so you want to come and hear Justin Peters talk about the health and wealth gospel, and it's it's mind-boggling what has happened under the auspices of such ideas. Remember, remember this Robert Tilton. That was uh, he was on TV. That he didn't get. Didn't he go to jail? And when he got out, he started right up again. Yeah. Is that right, Tilton? I used to watch him. Yeah, yeah. He was just all. His whole thing was he had one verse that he believed in, and it was this widow, widow of Zarephath, and when she gave to the prophet, then her cruise of oil didn't go empty. Okay. And he preached that verse. I used to have a channel that had him on, and I'd turn it on just to see how outrageous it was. And every single time, all the people out there are the widows. He's Elijah, and if they give their money to him, their cruise oil won't go empty. And he, and he harped on that and harped on that until he got himself a ticket to jail. Okay, yes. I think it's kind of funny how the, the, the same beast can kind of put on different colored clothing because I, th- I think many in, in more liberal churches direct that kind of despising toward very rich people. You know, they, they, they tend to sort of despise corporations and that kind of thing, and they tend to desire to sort of oh, take yeah. their money and give it to the poor who they, who they see as, you know, see sort of a, yeah. a so, you know, it's the same kind of beast. It's just sort of directing it to different objects, but it's the same prize. Very that astute. Too. That's a good observation. You know, but it's the same, you know, it's the same kind of distortion. It's the same like kind of about. idea. Uh, actually, you know, who invented that idea was Judas. Remember, Judas said, oh, you should have sold that and given the money to the poor. But then what it says, parenthetically, but Judas used to hold the money pouches steel out of it. So Judas's noble mind to take from the rich and give to the poor or was to give to Judas. And so, yeah, that's a very good observation. Then you have this whole idea of liberation theology. And there's various versions of that. It was very popular all oh, in the 70s and 80s in, in South America. And the idea was that anybody that had money was evil. The evil people are the ones that have money. The righteous people are the ones who don't. 
And so we set up some sort of a system to confiscate the money from the evil rich and give it to the righteous poor. Then we're doing God's work. Okay? That, but that's not what the Bible's teaching. It's not teaching that, it's, that, uh, that that's how you decide good and evil. As a matter of fact, the New Testament anticipates that there are people in the church, and we're seeing that here right in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that there are people in the church of all different economic status. And their status in the, in the church is not determined by their economic status anyway, neither through the health and wealth gospel say if you're wealthy, you're more righteous, or as you said, the liberation theology gospel says that if you're poor, you're more righteous. As a matter of fact, righteousness comes from the imputed righteousness of Christ, not one's economic status. And I believe the New Testament envisions a church in which all of the different kinds of people are all together and they're one because of what God did for them. All right? And we don't gain status by being some certain way, either by impoverishing ourselves or enriching ourselves or any other thing. We're just all one at the foot of the cross. So he says, not for the ease of others or for your affliction. Philipsis in the Greek means extreme pressure. Now, the same word is used in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 2, where it says, in the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed into wealth of their liberality. So here they were under trial and affliction, pressure, but they were full of joy. Now, if you read, you know, Macedonia included Thessalonica. And if you read Acts and read the epistles to Thessalonia, to Thessalonica, to the Thessalonians, you'll see that Paul is being very literal when he's talking about their flipsies pressure, extreme pressure. Because from day one, that church was under persecution. There was really heavy, violent Persecution against the gospel when it came into Thessalonica. And this was still the case when you read the Thessalonian epistles. And so they were under extreme pressure, and it was very difficult for them to even be Christian in that part of the world. And yet they were uh, full of joy. <laughs> Isn't it great to see how the Lord gives joy to people that you, you could imagine how they could have it. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen people just a terrible ordeal and they have the joy of the Lord anyhow? I guess only God can do that. But out of, it says, Eck, I see a note to myself to look up what Garland says here, so let me look that up. This was a couple of weeks ago when I did the research, so... Dr. Garland says this. Oh, I, I see why he says it. There's a preposition in here, ek, which means out of. Out of. Here is why that's important. Dr. Garland says this. Paul is not talking about the purpose of their giving to create equality, but the ground of their giving from equality. That's important theologically, isn't it? There's a big difference. In other words, this isn't a redistribute to wealth so everybody's the same sort of thing. Wow. Yeah. So he's talking about the ground of their giving, out of equality. Is he saying they're all equal in Christ and out of that grounding, out of that base? 
yeah, it seems to be that their equality is what is bringing out the giving that he's been talking about. He's not trying to impoverish them. Let's go to verse 14. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need. Now he's talking about the, the Jewish believers in Judea, so that their abundance may be a supply for your need, that there may be equality. So here the equality is not, again, there's a chiasmus going here, your, there, there, your. But there's a big question about what kind of equality he's talking about. They're, what kind of abundance do they have? Well, he could be talking about something spiritual, that their abundance is spiritual because they've had the gospel longer. That's where the church first was born, in, in Jerusalem, in Judea. And so that uh, perhaps that's what they're talking about. Or another idea is that there's an assumption that later there's going to be times when the Lord will bless the Judean Christians and, and when that happens, they'd be able to give to the Corinthians if need be. So there's, there's two possibilities there on that one, a spiritual one or a, a material one. Is there something in the Greek that we can't see here that clarifies that that is that meaning? Because if you go on to verse 14, it's so that their abundance also may become supply for your need, that there may be equality. It seems to be... It looks like you can interpret it either way. I'm just wondering if there's something that we can't see that... Well, just that one word, ek, uh, by the way, I came prepared. (laughs) Right out of the Logos Bible software, I print out the Greek. Because people ask me the Greek and I go, ah. All right, it says here, not for your affliction, but ek, from or out of equality. So So what... Garland is saying is uh, not into equality, but out of. So the equality is something that's already the basis for their giving. But then 14 says, your excess into their uh, lack in order that uh, the excess of them might become to you, to your lack. The question is, we're not sure what he's talking about. We're talking about money or some other aspect of their life. Yes. Well, I think we're talking about money. I mean, I'll stay with that side of it. Uh. The whole deal is not a matter of somebody having 100% and somebody having zero, I don't think. I think it's got more to do with need. One who's got a little more than they need, share with one okay. who has a little less than they need. Okay, that, that makes sense. I think that's true. I would agree with that. Yeah, well, I think that if Christians, and Christians do do that, by the way. I've seen it for as long as I've been a Christian. I've seen Christians be generous. And I've seen when Christians see other Christians in severe need spring to action to help them. So that's for sure true. I see the time is running out, so I wanted to bring this up. Are you in your discussion this week on tithing? Are you, or maybe I missed last week. Are you going to mention Malachi? Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago. The Malachi one? Yes. Yeah, Malachi and we said it didn't apply to the New Covenant Church. Well, you know what? I'd like to say I have a personal testimony. I do disagree about the tithing. I do. And we all, that's freedom. That's where liberty comes in. 
is we all have the Holy Spirit within us to interpret, and we learn all according to our own, uh, the Lord's time frame for us all. And, uh, you know, we all do have personal testimonies as to how the living Christ does operate in our lives. And um, on the subject of tithing, I haven't been able to tithe because I was unemployed, and I just, this month, I've gained, thankfully, thanks to God, some employment. So I was able to, I felt, to uh, begin tithing. And the very first week, that, I'm, and I, I go by minimum in my own personal understanding of 10%. That's a good starting place. And um, so that's what I just tithe because I don't make a lot of money, but I wanted to start operating in obedience to, to the Lord and also the privilege okay. of being able to give. Yeah, we, talk, we and, discuss that, and we, we don't teach okay. that tithing but, is binding. But anyway, I wanted to just say what, what my <laughs> testimony is that... I gave, the amount that I gave, I went and turned to my bank statement that came that month. And lo and behold, there was some kind of a program for that month where they, if you used your ATM card enough times, then they would credit that to your account. And it was almost the exact amount that I tithed. Okay. And it was just the Lord saying, I see, I see what you're doing. That's how I, you know, we, we all have our own personal relationships to the Lord. And I do know that that was the Lord commending me for the effort that I made to, and my willingness and my um, joy and the privilege of being able to contribute. Okay. You know, so I have other testimonies, but I won't go into those on tithing. Um, All right. We've taught and continue to teach that people are free. A lot of people love to give 10%. That's just what they want to do. You're free to do that. But we don't make it legally obligatory uh, in the same sense of the, of the Old Testament. It's, it's, if it's freely chosen, that's how people like to give, which they do, by the way. That's fine. You're free to spontaneously tithe. <laughs> okay, yes. All right. uh, now, here it says, I notice here in the Greek, in verse 14, now the season, the word there is kairo, or kairos, and that's the word for time when Paul is wanting to describe qualitative time. Qualitative time. There's two kinds of time, uh, ways, uh, words for time in the Greek, chronos and kairos. Chronos would be chronological time. Kairos would be qualitative time. And in English, we would, how would we say qualitative time? This is the, the hour, or this is the great moment of opportunity. Timely, yeah, it's a little less dramatic, timely is. But we don't have one word quite like that. So here it says, at this present time, he's really saying, um, there's another issue here I notice in my notes, too. Some people think this kairos has an eschatological implication. An eschatological implication. What that would mean then is that we're living in the last hour, and it's important that we take action to show the grace of God in our giving to relieve the needs of others around us. So that the the, the kairos, the crucial moment, is actually the end of the time, end of the age. That's 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 interesting because once Christ comes back, it's too late. We'll no longer be able to do this. That, that idea is going to be in my sermon in Luke 12, by the way, because it has the idea that we're in this household with managers, 
and slaves, as they had in the first century. And that the owner has gone away, and he's going to come back suddenly and unexpectedly. And when he does, he better not find us beating the other slaves or living in a riotous life. And so some people think, well, Jesus isn't come back. It doesn't matter what I do. So if, if kairos here means that, in this kind of a logical sense, we should be so doing uh, so that we'll be found to be in that state of giving joyfully when the Lord returns. Okay? Let me, we'll start back on that one. You, get to, you, you know, if you have insights about this that you gain here, I'll bring them back next week and we'll discuss it. We'll be back on verse 14 and then we'll go on from there next week. Have some fellowship and help with the, the chairs and then we'll see upstairs.